For when I look at the moon, I do not see a hostile, empty world. I see a radiant body where man has taken his first steps into a frontier that will never end. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, yeah, baby, Scott. David R. Scott, 1971. I think that sounded more like Scott of the Antarctic, Jamie, as an impression. Do you reckon? Yeah. Yeah. I think David Scott. Yeah, you might be right. David Scott will probably have more of the tang of the American accent in there, but uh, never mind. I love that word, tang. Um, So, Matt, the Apollo program, Apollo 15. Mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, I mean, pretty special time, right? Well, imagine how cool it is to drive an electric vehicle on the surface of the moon. They drove a car yeah. on the moon, 1971, on this very day, the 31st of July. That would have been fun. 1971. I mean, I think driving on the earth is fun let alone the moon. It is outrageous. Um, so, Matt, Apollo 15, uh, as you will remember, uh, David R. Scott, James B. Irwin, and, of course, Al M. Worden, who was the loneliest man at the time. Mm, in the whole world ever. Um, he was. Yeah, bless him, bless him. Passed away this year. R.I.P. R.I.P. <laughs> uh, Jamie, we have got an excellent guest today, haven't we? Oh, we have a fantastic guest. I'm very excited about this. Well, it's a rare it's a rare one where you've been able to get off work and, and join in the interview. Well, I couldn't miss this yeah. one. Yeah, Kate Underhill from yeah. the European Space Agency. She's part of the FLPP Propulsion Engineering Division. So, um, yeah, if you want to find out what FLPP is, you'll have to just listen to the uh, interview. You'll just have to listen. I'll tell you what, hell of a cliffhanger that. Yeah, man. I know. I mean, you know, I've it's pushed them to the it's edge. It's not rocket science. <laughs> no. Not. not. Do you remember that was going to be our jingle that for a while? That was going to be our jingle. The Interplanetary yeah. Podcast. It's not rocket science. Not. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's good. But <laughs> I think it's good, but maybe we made the right decision yeah, to drop it. I, I think it would I, have annoyed think, way more people than your your da-da-doos. Yeah, I think uh, the Interplanetary Podcast. Putting the ace back into space is definitely better. It's strong. It's, it's strong, isn't it? It's that, definitely that's strong. strong. Yeah. I'm glad we got Brian Blessed to do it, of course. I was going to say, I can't imagine Brian Blessed doing the other one. <laughs> so. Um, so there we go. So that's something to look forward to. Kate Underhill coming up. Coming up. Stay tuned. So today, Jamie, as we're talking, the podcast comes out tomorrow, which mm. will be today for the listeners, and today will be yesterday. So yesterday... Whoa or today for us, Jamie, we should see one of the most exciting launches for a long time, which, of course, is the Atlas V from Cape Canaveral, launch pad 41. Atlas V. Oh, my God, with Mars 2020, with the with an aircraft and a rover going to Mars. That is so achingly exciting. Matt, if today is yesterday, then have you got any advice for your former self? Yeah, the launch happened. What a launch, eh? Uh, talking of a launch, <laughs> Jamie, our very, very favourite space tug 
the Breeze M mm. is going to be in action yes. this weekend. Uh, also today. Incredible. Yes, for the Proton M. And of course, we get to see an Ariane 5, hopefully. This, as well, again, this is weekend. exciting stuff. Ariane. And then uh, 57 more Starlinks, which is yeah, uh, big time. Uh, this weekend as well. And uh, an odd one, uh, Astra and their Rocket 3. That actually might be flying this um, this week, uh, this weekend or early next week. So that should be mm. exciting. So the yes, look out for that. The Astra Rocket Three launch, small satellite. Look launch. out for it. So anyway, Jamie, yeah. I tell you what, we haven't had for a while. It is um, uh, Space News Week. We're supposed to have one every month, but but uh, here we go, Jamie. Yeah. Space News Week. Space News. Let's do a dive. Week. Here we go. Here it is. <laughs> is the jingle. That is the jingle. Okay. Um, so, yes, it's a giant leap for UK space flight. I see what you did there. Because um, they've opened up the public consultation for the Space Industry Act 2018, which should pave the way for UK's first ever space launch. Whoa, that is deep. Yeah, so they've, they've launched the public consultation this week. Um, they hope to have launches in the early 2020s, so soon, Jamie. It's quite exciting, isn't it? And That is exciting. They've given the Civil Aviation Authority, uh, they're going to be the regulator of commercial spaceflight. So this is all about getting the rules rules in, in, in place. So this is what your mate Grant Shapp said. He said, Oh, yeah. Getting the rules in place for space launches from the UK territory may seem like one small step, but it paves the way for a giant leap in the development of our space sector. There's a lot of uh, Neil Armstrong esque um, paraphrasing, isn't there? There. There is quite a bit. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I see what they were trying it's not, to do. It's not quite going yeah. to the moon, it's just launching no. satellites. But hey. Hey, come on! This is still hey, one step at a time. This is still exciting you know? stuff. The transport minister, exactly. Rachel McLean, said the steps taken today would join up leading technology companies to rural areas across Great Britain, leveling up local economies and making them a leader in small payload space launches. Sorry about that, Rachel. I'm sure you don't sound like the Queen. Um, and what did the geniusly named? Richard Moriarty, say, I just—he's the chief executive of the uh, of the Civil Aviation Authority. What did he say? He said, "We have a long and proud history of satellite technology and space research, and the CAA wants to support the industry to build on these foundations." It's cool, isn't it? We were uh, the UK, yeah, cool. the UK, Pretty yeah. Cool. So. Until now, everything's been governed by the Outer Space Act of 1986 to uh, help UK businesses procure the launch of satellites abroad, and they needed to hold a license, and it's a sort of globally respected licensing regime. So that has been sort of superseded, although it hasn't quite, by the Space Industries Act 2018, which laid out this kind of plan to make the UK super important in the global space world, and including trying to get our own launch capability. 
So, Matt, do you know if there was anything in the Outer Space Act 1986 that stopped satellites from letting off weapons in space? Um, well, that that's that's covered. Just curious. Well, no, that's covered by another treaty, I believe. Okay. So yes, I think there's um, yeah, there there is a there is the the missile technology control regime or the MTCR, yeah. although that's not le- that's not legal one it's not a legally binding treaty but i think no. the government have a legislation in place that covers that anyway made me a little bit worried when i read about that no well you know if you've been reading there was a great scott manley um video about uh this latest russian satellite technology that's been tracking these yeah. uh, american spy satellites the ones that the hubble telescope is based on the ones that point to mm-hmm. the ground. There's been Russian satellites that have mini satellites that break off and track uh, these larger satellites. And the Americans have been trying to maneuver out the way and this satellite's been tracking it and and presumably just sort of looking at it. But it worryingly set off a yet another mini satellite from that one, which they reckon is some form of projectile that could be used... Okay. Basically, you have a satellite hanging around another satellite, and the moment you get into any kind of conflict, you just basically destroy that satellite. So the Russians are kind of sticking up loads of satellites that are then going to take out American assets. So the Russians and the Chinese have kind of started to militarize space. So you can see what Space Force is all about and and why Space Force exists. In fact, weirdly, have you ever heard of Artemis? I have. So Artemis is obviously the American moon <laughs> the American moon mission or a former mm. or a former uh, ESA satellite as well. But it's also an, a UK military satellite called Artemis. It is. And that's part of some uh, Operation Olympic Defender. it's another good one so yeah uh, so artemis so space force i hadn't heard about artemis for a couple of years and i'm i'd assumed that they dropped the name because of this kind of uh mix up with with the moon name obviously artemis being a nasa but no the 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 u the u.s space force have actually been talking about the uk artemis and uh, operation olympic defender because they're sort of working closer and closer with the UK in terms of trying right. to protect space from the naughty Norman Russians and Chinese. Basically, Jamie, it's it's for anyone who thinks that uh, conflict and uh, military struggle will remain on Earth, I think, and it is disappointing, but I think you will be disappointed. I think you'll find that it's yeah, it's already yeah. spread into space. Just you know, there's billions. It's inevitable, well, isn't it? Sadly, well, there's billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of assets, military assets in space, and and yeah. and Russia have got a lot of expertise in space, and they're falling behind in so many other areas that it's a way of yeah. it's a way of them sort of keeping their military upper hand, as it were, and it certainly is for China as well. So it's all it's all pretty gross. Mm-hmm. But that's the way of the world, isn't it, Jamie? It's the way of the world. It is. You know, we just have to not worry too much about the stuff that we can't change. Am I right, Matthew? Well, exactly. And well, anyway, let's get back to the UK. So the UK, the, 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 the UK. Outer Space Act 1986 will still 
look after the procurement of overseas launch. So if you want to, mm-hmm. so if Jamie, if we come up with a little satellite and we want, uh, you know, an Atlas V to launch it, we'd build, we'd build a little Mars rover or something like that. Then we'd still go through the act. Yeah, we'd we we'd still use the legislation in place from the Outer Space Act. However, if we want to launch something in the UK, we'd be using the Space Industry Act of 2018, which is not quite finished because they need to do this, you know, public. Uh, consultancy so they need to consult the public iron out all the little issues but we're almost there we're almost there now the one thing it won't cover jamie and you'll be a bit disappointed by this is it won't cover orbital launch vehicles with human occupants so unfortunately i won't Ah. be able to fire you into space uh using the space industry act 2018 we'll have to wait (sighs) for some more legislation to come in fair enough i'll wait uh and would have to follow a LARP. And a LARP is my favorite acronym of the week. Acronym of the week. Here we go. Which, <laughs> Welcome back. Which is, uh, it's the act of getting the risks as low as reasonably possible. A LARP. Brilliant. Act <laughs> yeah, perfect. As low as reasonably possible. Are your risks a LARP? So I like that. Um, yeah, <laughs> and of course, this is all. There's been a few uh, recently. We talked about that. Um, we talked about the UK and the US had signed some agreement that allows America to send over technology that's sensitive, military sensitive to the UK, etc. So, uh, yeah, the mm. Americans are gearing up to launch from the UK as well. So it's really exciting times, Jamie. UK, UK times. It really is exciting. Yeah. I love it. Um, I also wanted to talk about a piece I read by a a uh, great space person, Betty Bonardell Azelli, who is from oh, Access yes. Space, and she wrote a piece in Via Satellite because obviously I've been trying to work out what the heck's going to happen with OneWeb. And normally, mm-hmm. if you read things like The Guardian, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it's always very negative, and I have to say. Whatever whatever people put up, it's quite funny when the when the um, <laughs> UK government uh, tweeted this public consultation. The tweets are so negative. It's like, well, if it's anything like the trains, it will be a mess. Can't we sort out the buses first and all that kind of stuff? It's like, oh, for God's sake, <laughs> yeah, classic. This is it's nothing to do with buses and trains. Anyway, that aside, um, uh, yeah, the, she was going on a, a little bit about OneWeb. And she was sort of saying that um, early uh, that the UK regulators, i.e., Ofcom and the UK Space Agency, had been involved with OneWeb for a long time, and therefore they're super well informed on the system, the assets, and its potential. And she'd led mm. a study for the European Space Agency on the potential applications and services offered by these large satellite constellations, and OneWeb was the kind That's of right. reference model. And uh, she was basically saying that the, the case study found that the, that that they that they offered enormous value, especially for government use. Uh, uh-huh. So yeah, so the government use actually make them affordable and easy to maintain. So there there is there is method to the madness of government buying OneWeb. And the, right. and they're also saying that this dual usage of of adding uh, p- positioning, navigation, and timing (PNT) 
is a, is an opportunity that needs to be studied more in depth because obviously it offers an enormous cost benefit if it if it happens to work. She's also saying that OneWeb brought a massive amount of intellectual property and innovation to the UK. Um, so, you know, and that uh, that means that the UK can lead in non-geostationary broadband capacity around the globe. Which can only be a good can thing. Can only be a good thing. And she also pointed out that European investors have always tended to be really conservative and always try for the sort of short-term return of investment, right? That's a very European outlook. Mm. And the United States is is quite opposite. They love these risky, high-risk, high-stake projects. And of course, the history shows that those are the ones that give you these immense returns. So mm. they're sort of saying that maybe this is a good idea. The UK has kind of invested in a high-risk strategy, which is more like the US strategy that's more likely to actually give us some long-term long return on investment. So I thought that was slightly good news on the one web story. I'd, lo I'd love to hear the other side of the coin on that one. But I'm remaining optimistic, like I say. There you go. That's why I like you, Matt. You always mm. remain mm. optimistic. Mm. And Matt, did you hear about the, the, the butchers that was very high risk? No. The stakes were very high. Wow. I didn't even think you were going to go. I didn't think you were going to go there, but you ended up going there. I wasn't. I wasn't for a while. I think I told it wrong, but, um, you know, there we go. There we are. You're a, I'm standing You're a bit it. like the baker who has special needs. Oh, God. Right. So, Jamie, uh, there's... Why did, the, why did the baker have brown hands? Because he needed a poo. Okay, let's move on very quickly. What did the rocket scientist do... When he when he needed a poo, and he was constipated, worked it out with a pencil. pencil. Uh, Jamie, <laughs> yes. there's a new film almost out. Eva Green, one of my faves, Interstellar, James Brilliant. Bond, etc. Uh, she's in a film mm -hmm. called Proxima. Oh wow! Where she's the mother of a child, and she's leaving because she's an astronaut. It's all about that struggle of leaving a child behind when you're an astronaut. Um, is it out? When's it out? I, it's I out see that. soon. I don't. It doesn't have a release date, but I saw a preview of it, and there's lots of ESA footage and Soyuz takeoffs. So it's all looking very, very cool. So she's like wearing, you know, oh, ESA really merch. See that. So actually, I'm, I'm, I'm. It's looking like it's very good, and it gets, um, gets some good reviews. But it ties in with another story here. So, uh, Thomas. Pesquet, uh, the ah, yes. great French astronaut, uh, equivalent to Tim Peake, part of the same gang, Tim's mate, Thomas. He, he, yeah. um, his first space mission was also called Proxima or Proxima. Didn't we interview Thomas um, when we went to ESA? No. Um, or am I no, thinking no, we no. no, annoyingly. Oh, well, we'll yeah, have we to. Yeah, we definitely have to. But uh, he, he will be in very much demand at the moment because... He's just yeah. been assigned his second space flight, which will be on a SpaceX Crew Dragon. So he'll be the first Ooh, European yes. astronaut, European Space Agency astronaut, on the Crew Dragon. So that's pretty exciting. I bet. I wonder if I wonder that if Tim great. Peake's a little bit jealous of that. But hey, well, Joe. But it's his second mission. His first mission being Proxima, and his second mission being Alpha, because the French like to name 
their space missions after stars. Alpha Centauri, of course. Yes, and of course, Alpha is part of the Prox, is, well, Proxima is part of the Alpha Centauri system, so it's all quite cool and fits in. So, well, fits together nicely. And of course, Alpha, because he's the first European Space Agency astronaut on an American, uh, on American commercial flight. So he is the Alpha. Well, he's the Alpha male well, that is, of, of European that space is flight. Alpha male. <laughs> yeah. It's like you're the alpha male of the podcast. Aren't Very you? much so. Well, like the silverback, Very I'm like the silverback so. gorilla of the podcast. Yeah, the podcast. Sort of we weeing on weeing on stuff to sort of claim yeah. it. That's what you do, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? No, absolutely. Uh, Matt, you, talking of good news, would you like to hear about Latvia? Gone. Well, yeah. What's happening with Latvia? Well, they've only become an ESA associate member state. Ah, that is nice, isn't it? So, welcome on board. So, Latvia. congratulations. Beautiful. Congratulations, Latvia. Yeah, beautiful country. Beautiful country, beautiful people, super. Yeah, you've been. You know, I have beautifully. Been. You you love. I do. Latvia, I love all you? the Baltic states and and uh, the, uh, yeah, Latvia. Ex- extremely uh, pleasant, lovely people, lovely uh, architecture. Everything about it's great. Get yourself to Latvia. There we go. When it's safe to do so. <laughs> yes. So uh, NASA, of course. We've just heard about Thomas Thomas Pesquet. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, they they uh, they have announced other members of Crew Two, SpaceX Crew Two. Yeah. So uh, these the other members are Shane Kimbrough, Megan MacArthur, and of course, what's great about that is Megan MacArthur is the wife of Bob Benken, who is of course the astronaut who is currently flying on a SpaceX uh, Dragon. So, uh, oh, so is, I think that they, is brilliant. What a they must have done that so that there wasn't, you know, that obviously there's lots of bragging rights at, at meal times, and <laughs> yeah, and of sure. course uh, Megan was probably a bit annoyed that Bob could, you know, lord it over her. So she's, um, yeah. so no, she's got herself in there to make sure that 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 supper time is no longer going to be, you know, a sort of space mission off. Like I'd imagine it was. Incredible. Um, yeah, so uh, those two are going up. And, of course, uh, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency astronaut, the JAXA astronaut, Akahiko Hoshidi, is nice. going up as well. So uh, that's pretty pretty cool. So that's their Crew 2, targeted for spring 2021. Well, congratulations, Hoshida-san. Very excitingly, this weekend... We shall see Demo 2, Bob Benken and Chunky, uh, landing in the ocean. Oh, landing yeah. in the ocean. Stay safe. People. As they return to Earth on August the 2nd, hopefully. Uh, then we've got Crew 1 mission targeted for late September. And if you've forgotten who's on that, we've got Michael Hopkins, Victor Glover, and another Japanese astronaut, Soichi Noguchi. And a third NASA oh, wow. astronaut, Shannon Walker. So there's f- Shannon so Walker, there four we go. on that mission, which will restore the space uh, station uh, number back to seven because it's been running on a it's, it's a been lot. running on a crew of six, sometimes five, which has meant they haven't been getting as much science as they need. Apparently, it will double the amount of science you can do if you have that extra 
person on oh, board. That's only a good thing. So well done. Well done to all those people who've been given SpaceX flights, which is excellent news. Now, I wonder if Thomas Pesquet is doing a Dragon, which means is it more likely that Tim Peake now will be pushed onto a Boeing flight? I don't know. I don't know. But hmm. we'll have to wait and see what he ends up going up to. Whatever it is, I'm super excited for him and for the UK. Uh uh, the, of course, we can't we can't go on and not talk about uh, NASA's major launch, Mars twenty twenty Perseverance rover. Now, I, I I thought I'd pick on one little bit of this because I've got a little bit of a connection to it. So, um, this is the third attempt to get microphones on Mars. Did, did, this is tricky. So, did you know this? So, yes. So, when Perseverance arrives on Mars, it will have two microphones. So it will be able to touch, taste, and finally, for the first time, be able to hear sounds on Mars. Now, that's even though I've just said it, I know that's not quite true. So, okay. so by microphone, we mean a microphone that that changes acoustic energy that's airborne into electrical energy. But of course, there's already transducers on Mars that that are able to convert acoustic energy and acoustic energy can be vibrations through rock and of course insight has a an, an acoustic transducer on it and we were able to use that to hear the sounds of mars already however we don't have an actual right. sort of airborne acoustic noise microphone like a stand you know what what your man in the street would call a microphone on Mars. Well, that is an exciting development. So is it, it's a super exciting development. So um, they've tried to get microphones to Mars before, so hopefully they're not a jinx. So one was on the Mars Polar Lander, which crashed into the planet with a with almighty litho-breaking or litho-breaking yeah. disaster. And the Phoenix Lander had a microphone on it, but it was switched off because of a technical fault. So it never got switched on <laughs> so um oh, but perseverance will have two microphones it will have an entry descent and landing microphone so a microphone will be switched on and we should be able to hear the whole thing the entry and the descent and the landing through a microphone which is really cool and uh that is so yeah cool. and on the end of the 15 millimeter boom head of the rover's long mast there's the uh there's another microphone which will pick up the super cam as it fires the as oh. it fires lasers into rocks the idea is i mean come on the idea i mean this is genius fires a laser into the rock that releases hot plasma and the and the vibration and heat off that hot plasma actually causes a shock wave a popping sound um you know, like a bit like when you use a taser, you can hear that kind of noise. Yeah. Now that should be able you from the acoustic properties of that, you'll be able to use that as a fingerprint for chemical analysis. So using the microphone, they'll be able to uh, do some form of chemical analysis and tell how hard the rock is and stuff like that, which is super cool. That is super cool. God damn. So not only that, not only because it run for a few microseconds to do that, it can also run for uh, up to three and a half minutes 
to listen to the rover itself as it scratches around and moves around. So perhaps it can even be used as a diagnostic tool to work out when things are going wrong. Yeah. But there'll also be some really cool things like when it drops the sample tubes down on the floor. You know, like like when you go out in the morning to put your milk bottles out, we might get that kind of sound as as Perseverance sticks down its its sample return tube and the wind whistling cool. over the mast of the rover. Ah, oh, it's so romantic. Oh. Yeah, and the low pitched howls of dust devils as they pass by. But I tell you what's very cool about this. That's going to be my ringtone. Is is, is that they're using um, Danish Pro Audio DPA microphones, the DPA 4006 to be precise. And I've used the DPA 4006. Whoa. It is an incredible. Oh it's an incredible microphone. So, yeah, DPA uh, used to help me out with quite a lot of microphones. They, they, uh, gave, me a, um, they gave me a microphone for Leanne Rhymes when I did a showcase with her. That was good. She uses DPA. So, Clang. yeah, you know, so, so Leanne Rhymes, just like the um, <laughs> just like the Perseverance Rover, uses DPA microphones. But even better than that, Jamie, is that these DPA microphones are actually built, the actual capsule themselves are built by Bruhl and Kier. Okay. They're both Danish companies. So Bruhl and Kier, uh, Kier actually was one of, uh, was part of the faculty at Salford University when I was there. And they build scientific instruments. So I used to use the same Bruhl and Kier capsules for measuring noise at the side of motorways and stuff like that. So they're amazing, amazing microphones, like just absolutely geniusly flat response and stuff like that. Mm. But Bruhl and Kier got sort of broken up into these different companies, uh, one of them being this Danish pro audio company that uh, that left that uh, organization. But Bruhl and Kier was sold to a German company who then sold it to a UK company. So <laughs> just about the microphone capsules themselves, in essence, are built by a Danish company that are owned by a UK sort of venture capitalists. And they're put on capsules by another Danish company that are owned by an Italian company. God, so it makes you realize wow, very how, European. How, how, how complicated all these sort of major scientific companies are and how everything really requires international effort these days. You just can't do anything without it. You know, the expertise required is, you know, all these different countries, UK, uh, Denmark, Italy, NASA, of course. It's just, it's incredibly complicated. I love it. But I think that's what space is all about. Yeah. But also, you can also the the rovers actually got inside just a normal um, audio interface by DPA. Well, yeah. I say normal; it's quite an expensive one, but just you know, the, a regular one that you can buy from the shops. Audio interface, and it and it's sort of built into the rover, hidden in the rover because it's quite a small audio interface, and it attaches to the rover computer mundanely using a USB cable. It's pretty crazy, <laughs> isn't it? I love that. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 amazing, isn't it? So yeah, I, I I thought that was really cool. So well done to my friends over at DPA. That is a that is shout super out DPA. Cool. Well done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, of course, I'm using an EV mic. 
<laughs> yeah. And you're using a Rode. So, you know, lots of other makes of mics are available. They are. You know, I don't want to think people think that we're, you know, being sponsored to say this. We're not. We're not a sponsored yeah, if you, show. If you ever want to record violins, DPA microphones, absolutely extraordinary good. So in some more international news. Okay. Uh, JAXA. JAXA. Uh, uh, so Japan's Hayabusa 2 spacecraft is making its way back home, Jamie, of course. So July the 14th is when the uh, JAXA announced uh, that they would be landing in the Australian outbook back in the Woomera range on December the 6th, 2020. And uh, Carl Rodriguez said, Woomera is a rare, very remote area. Uh, <laughs> it makes it ideal for safe management and landing of the particular craft and capsule, eh? Good. <laughs> uh, thanks. <laughs> I was going to leave it up to you, but I thought, nah, no, I, 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 felt, I felt I felt, like I could channel Australian yeah, in the moment. Definitely. So, so the last time – so Japan have done this before, of course, with Hayabusa. So Hayabusa brought back a millionth of a gram of dust from the asteroid Itokawa uh-huh. in 2010. But due to a whole bunch of mishaps, that's how how they ended up with only a millionth of a gram. They hope this time to bring back up to a gram of material. So that would be super cool, wouldn't it? That would be very cool. A lot more. So, yeah, well, it's a lot more. And and but they don't. And so they they fired a projectile into <laughs> into the asteroid, mm. um, but they don't know when they when they went and scooped up the dust, how much dust they actually collected. And they won't know until they get back. Ah. So it's it, it's going to be stressful times. Not only that, Hayabusa 2 has to drop this capsule off into Earth, then it's got to make a fiery re-entry, then it's got to parachute down into the Australian outbook and outback and be recovered safely. So there's lots of things to go wrong. But... If you want to hear about value for money, Hayabusa 2 is then going to fly off and visit possibly two more asteroids. That is value for money. That is cool, isn't it? And Osiris-Rex, of course, will be returning material from Bennu, the asteroid Bennu, oh, in 2023. Bennu. yeah. And they, they've got a little swap going on. So NASA and JAXA have... Uh, have agreed to sort of swap a little bit of dust with one another. <laughs> like at school when so you swap cool. crisps. <laughs> it is. It's like swapping uh, little little. We cards. used to say one for one. And if anyone took one two, for one. oh, I'll tell you what. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, they're just scum. They're yeah. scum, Jamie. Yeah. Yeah. One, one last bit of international news, and that is the Indian Space Research Organization, ISRO, I thought it was worth noting. Can you believe? Remember, it, it's it's over a year ago now that Chandrayaan two took off um, on a GSLV Mark three. That's right, and took the Vikram lander to the moon, where unfortunately the Vikram lander failed, and again <sighs> did a bit of cool litho breaking into the surface of the moon. It did gutted. How, however, the Chandrayaan two itself the orbiting satellite, is working perfectly. All eight instruments are working well, and they're going to be releasing the data from that in October for world global use, science use. 
So well, that's, that's great really news. cool. That's a that's a that's a massive success story for well done, it, despite India. it. Well, in some ways, that the, the the lander overshadowed the success of the actual mission. In some ways, yeah. So yeah, Chandrayaan two was was very very. Uh, very very cool mission indeed. So Excellent well done, and, well done. Uh, really look forward to to seeing what what joy that science brings. So shall we listen to our interview with Kate? I really think we should. Let's do it. A code hi the interplanetary podcast putting the ace. Back into space. So we're joined on the podcast by Kate Underhill, who is an FLPP propulsion engineer at the European Space Agency, a bona fide rocket scientist. Welcome to the show, Kate. Hello. Thank you very much. Welcome, Kate. Thanks so much for doing this. We know how busy you are. And, uh, you know, we've we've got some questions for you. Our listeners are very excited. So, Matt, where should we start? Well, let's start with what on earth uh, FLPP stands for. <laughs> it's a good question, yeah. Future Launch uh, Preparatory Programme. So he's within the ESA Space Transportation Directorate, so ex-launchers, but we now work on space transportation, so going up into space, moving around space and coming back down again. These are all the topics we're working on, and within that we have the existing launches we have today, so Ariane 5, uh, which is going to be launching in a couple of weeks, and Vega, which hasn't launched recently because of high winds, but should be launching in August. And we have our launches in development, so Ariane 6, and then Vega C coming as well. And then beyond that, we have future launch of a priority program. So what is, what are the next technologies, but also what are the next systems that we need to be looking at in Europe for our access to space? I mean, it's it's quite a complicated, the, 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 the thing that, I find complicated anyway is the relationship between the European Space Agency and say the Ariane group and how all those yeah. things interact can you uh, can you are you able to describe that to me to sort of finally <laughs> finally yeah. put it to rest in my head it's, it's it's complicated because we actually have multiple roles as ESA so um within the space transportation directorate we are um helping with the development we help in the in the future, it's quite easy in the future. So future technologies, we're the ones kind of looking into the future and trying to work out what we need. And we're ahead of industry. We're looking into things that are not maybe not quite uh, applicable yet, that are not quite uh, uh, cost efficient enough or, or looking into things where they need to spend a bit of money on development. So that's easy for us to kind of come in there and be the research behind the early, early stage research and start looking for an application. Now in development, we are... Um, we are helping, we are kind of, we bring all the money together from Europe and define what our needs are as a customer. So the other role we have is a customer for launches. So ESA in general is a customer for European launches. We have to launch all of our satellites. So at Space Transportation, we bring together all the customer requirements and then we give them to Ariane Group, who is the, um, and uh, Avio in Italy, who are the, the, the main, the system uh, people for the launches. And then they define the, the launcher. And then we also are responsible in with the launch base with the French Space Agency working from the launch base about on the ground system. So we have multiple roles. Ariane Group is there and everywhere there are to, to design, make and launch the launchers. And we have all the roles in defining the future needs, defining customer needs and also preparing, giving the, the, the base, the ground system availability. Yeah, so it's not all of the countries in the European Space no. Agency are involved, are they, with, with, with launchers? 
launches is an optional program. Again, I don't know how much you know about the, the various bureaucracy within ESA, but we have the European Space Agency has, uh, if you want to be a member, you have to pay kind of a membership fee, which covers basic costs of ESA, like my salary. Um, and um, the basic programs, which is science, is, is one of the key ones. It's really a, a main program of ours. Everybody contributes to science programs. Space transportation launches is an optional program. So member states can opt in and add in money or or, or not. And I understand the UK have opt out is that right um up until now so they've opted out the main programs but we have this is what were some of the interesting things we're doing uh, in the last few years has been these commercial we have institutional needs so we know what our our satellites need to launch um but we're now seeing that there is a kind of potential commercial market out there um and so we're working not as a customer but as providing our expertise and technical knowledge to any company in Europe that would want to make their own launches. And this is what we're seeing now in the UK. There's a lot of uh, projects coming up in Scotland, in Cornwall, about UK launch. And so we are available to provide our, our know-how. We know how to launch things to these uh, to these companies. And the UK is interested in those aspects of, uh, of ESA launches. Has that been exciting for you as a Brit to see Britain <laughs> actually taking an interest again in in, in launching since our, since um, we abandoned it in seventy one? <laughs> yeah, it is a bit you know a bit of a shame being the UK that had the country that had a launcher and then said, "Nah, we're all right. We don't want that anymore." Um, and uh, so it's on a very personal viewpoint. I've been quite enjoying having uh, professional meetings in the UK, being able to travel to the UK for work, um, and also I think it really is. I think there really is a um, an interest point in that the UK wants to do something. They want to do these commercial launches. You know, it's more polar orbits, microsatellites, nanosatellites. So it's very different from what Ariana 5 and Vega are doing. So it's interesting to see what these companies are doing. And I really think that we can bring our experience. Again, we know how to launch things. We know about satellites. We know how to launch things. So we can bring our experience to help these commercial companies get off the ground, literally, and figuratively. Okay, I wanted to ask about I know that part of the goal of what you're doing is to develop environmentally friendly technologies. What challenges are there at the moment with with that area? It's a yeah, it's a good question. Um, we exactly we're looking into things like green propellants. Um, so uh, we have uh, a lot of a lot of the propellants we have on launch today, like Ariane Five, has oxygen and hydrogen as one of the main propellants and that's that's easy that's that produces water so we don't have a problem with that um on our what we have storable propellant stages which use um hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide which are very nasty chemicals and we are trying to find uh ways of uh not using them anymore but the problem with them is they are aside from being very polluting and very nasty they're actually really easy to use they ignite by themselves which means that our engines are a lot easier we can ignite the engine as many times as we want, um, and they have a, a decent performance. So our problem is finding something. You want a chemical that's very reactive in order to have a good engine, but not so reactive that it's dangerous for you and the environment. So it's quite hard finding that compromise. And in Europe, we don't have, or across the world, there's not that much experience. We're really into very basic chemistry, some elements, really understanding basic chemistry and reactions and then trying to put that into an actual engine and designing an engine. So we're starting from, you know, very, very basic information, trying to build up the knowledge to be able to design an engine on these things. 
is that is that one of the main driving factors of something like Prometheus and, and methane is an, an environmental thing, or is it more to do with reusability? It's um, it's a bit of everything. There is methane is interesting on this point because it's it's easier for reusability. So we don't the engine is easier to it's cheaper. It's easier to use because methane is what we call a light cryogenic. It's not like hydrogen, which has to be at twenty kelvin. It's quite heavy to, to operate. Methane is only only at seventy kelvin. Um, so it's it's easier to use. It um, means that we can be if we get it in the right uh, operating realm, we can reuse it because it's relatively clean burning, and because it's not toxic, it's cheaper just in terms of, of production and management on the ground and safety of, and security of people around. So, so presumably, you're involved with with projects like the the Prometheus and 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 and, and where that goes next. Yes. Um, so I'm, as I said, I'm a propulsion engineer in uh, in FLPP. Prometheus is a is a promo- is a propulsion project within FLPP, um, and I'm not the main technical lead on that. But I provide a lot of support in terms of technology development. And what is really interesting, there's a number of interesting aspects on Prometheus. So it is this idea of really low cost reusable engine for Europe, uh, reusing, learning about oxygen, methane, and all, all these elements, and um, all the technologies we're putting into that are really interesting. So we're using a lot of additive manufacturing. This is, you know, the big buzzword, 3D printing of parts to really bring the cost down of these elements. And all of that technology we're looking into is applicable for Prometheus, but we're also saying, well, well actually, if we develop it, we can also put it on engines today. So some of the Vulcan engine, Vinci engine we have today, can we reduce the cost with these parts, with these uh, additive manufacturing, with these new laser igniters we're using with Prometheus? Can we already get the cost reductions of those onto uh, onto our existing engines. And then, as you said, the other interesting thing is, what can we do with Prometheus? Uh, what can this engine, if we once we, we demonstrate it, its performance and its cost, then it's going to be a really interesting engine in our, in our uh, engine set. And what kind of launches can we have with that? So can we upgrade Ariane 6 with this engine? How, where could we put it? Can we put it on the upper stage and the lower stage? Can we put it on boosters? And also, what... I'm extremely biased because I'm a propulsion engineer. I really think engines are the core of the launcher. So once you've got an engine that works, that kind of really opens up the what launcher can I make with that? So once we have a Prometheus engine, how many that is made to stack together? Well, if I put seven or 11 on a stage, what does that mean for my launcher? And it really opens up this possibility of future reusable launchers within Europe. Yeah, do, 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 do have Avisa felt the pressure of some of, of other commercial providers like SpaceX? Uh, making making launch ex- exceedingly cheap and therefore do you feel the pressure from that or is it something that's 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 nice to have uh, yes within europe we feel that pressure because in europe we have quite a uh, a special environment for our launches is that we, we we've decided that we need access to space it's a strategic goal of europe it's something really important we need to be able to launch our satellites when we want to launch them but we don't send enough satellites every year in order to maintain a launcher capability just for our satellites. So, in fact, in Europe, we're quite dependent on the commercial market because the more you launch, the cheaper it is per launch. Um, so, I, I think it's always about fifty percent of commercial satellites are launched by have been launched by Iron Five. Fifty percent of the ones in space now have been launched by Iron Five. It's been very successful in the commercial market up until now because it's provided good quality, you know, good, good value for money and good performance. Um, and when we have pressure on the commercial prices, then that we feel that as an institutional customer driving up the prices on our side. 
Ariana Spass that commercialised the launch in Europe has seen that commercial pressure and has been involved in then defining what we need for Ariane 6 to reduce the cost and then what we need beyond Ariane 6 to reduce the cost. Is that a conversation that's going on now is the, the Ariane 7, Ariane Next conversation? <laughs> Presumably there, there, there must be a kind of feel of a rush for it now. But this is, I mean, this is why I quite like working in the future because there's always a future. You know, I'm never going to run out of work. There's always something yeah. next yeah, and next thing to come. So Ariane 6 needs to come in and needs to work because it's a big cost reduction with respect to Ariane 5 and it's got new technologies and it's responding to the requirements defined by Ariane Spass for customers. But once we've got that in, then, yeah, what is the next step? We need to, we can see that we need to take the next step again in cost reduction and reusability and in terms of flexibility. And this is what is quite tricky for launcher development is that launchers take a long time. They're very big, complicated systems. They take a long time to develop. And a long time is four or five years is, is really quick for us. And that's what we're doing there in six. But the satellite market changes every two, three years. Someone does a prediction and, you know, two years time, satellites will be like this and it's completely different. And so what we're seeing now is a lot of various constellations and then there's microsatellites, but it's not as big as we thought it would be. And then they're going to different orbits. So we can see, well, actually what we, the market we thought might, we might be having in a few years time is, is changing rapidly. And we're going to have to react to that and get a launcher that can answer, answer the customer requirements that will be there in 2030. Interesting. Okay. I want to, um, I want to talk about when you were growing up, what was the first thing that you can remember that, really hooked you into what you do now whether that's space or um you know rockets what what can you remember is i have an incredibly cheesy story about this but it's actually uh, <laughs> true as well um, i'm interested yeah it was i when i was i think it was 10 or 11 i went to uh, for a sleepover at a friend's house and this was we were living in um, sheffield at the time I, I don't sound like I lived in Sheffield, but I did live in Sheffield for seven years. <laughs> sure. um, and uh, we went to, and my friends, we were sleeping over in her, in her um, living room and she had the kind of the French windows and the living room so you could kind of see out into the garden. And I was in, I got my, it was a night, got into my sleeping bag and rolled over onto my back and I looked up through the window and it was the most beautiful, beautiful, clear night, you know, Sheffield winter, very frosty, clear, no clouds. And you just had the most amazing view of, of, of the sky, of stars, of galaxies. I could see all these stars up there. And I just thought, yeah, that's that's what I want to do. That's where I want to go. I want to go into space. That's what I want to do with my life. Wow. That was it. That was the moment. There we go. Yeah. And then I'm incredibly, I've been incredibly lucky with my parents. I went home the next day, you know, 11 year old and told my parents I wanted to be an astronaut. And they were like, okay, so let's, let's see what we need to do about that. That leads me nicely onto the next question, which is there's a lot of young people that listen to our podcast who ask how they can get into these industries um, and do they do they always need to, um, you know, if they want to get into the space world, not necessarily rockets, uh, do they always need to have the best grades in, in you know, uh, certain subjects? But that's not always the case, right? No, and this is... Something I think we need to work better at as an industry is to demonstrate that the variety of, of jobs that are available and also what an engineering job is is actually is. I was I was laughing with uh, my with my mum and uh, she she's retired now and incredibly busy and doing lots of different courses and she's decided to take up an algebra class and so the other day she had got out and was doing her algebra lesson and I was laughing she's going to do more maths in the day than I am as a rocket scientist. Because I'm doing lots of reading, reporting, uh, meeting, doing meetings. And so it's not, 
there is so much you can do. I'm a rocket scientist, but I'm not terribly math heavy in my job, but it's very inter very interpersonal interaction and also creative because we're defining the future. So we have to think about things that don't exist yet. Um, but we have so many people working at ESA on finance, legal elements, but also uh, communications. I've, um, I'll do a bit of publicity. I did a, a video recently called Meet the Experts about uh, for kids about rockets. Um, and I really like the way they put it together. It was a really, really nice video and really good images. So we need people to be able to do all sorts of things, visual, visual arts. We're trying to get people involved. We've got Kerbal Space Program now with uh, ESA launchers in it. So there is a huge variety of jobs you can do within space and engineering that are not, even within the technical environment, there are a huge number of different jobs. But beyond that, we need all sorts of people. That's amazing advice. Would you recommend any websites that any kids can go to to get more information on, on that? Yeah, so I check out ESA Education. They've been doing quite a lot recently, especially with the, with the various lockdowns across different countries, really trying to provide um, information, games and things for kids to, to keep them occupied and interested in science. Fantastic. Does, That's does, great advice. Does a, does a day at the European Space Agency feel like you're playing Kerbal Space Program? <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes, like I say, you have to create things that don't exist and you kind of say, well, is this going to work? We put this together and try and work out if it's going to, if it's going to look good or not. Um, I mean, I think that's probably a sign of a good job. If you don't feel like you're working, you feel like you're playing a little bit sometimes. I think it means you're uh, enjoying your job. If, if you wanted to show off about something about, say, Ariane 6, that, that was, that, that are new technologies that, that, that really stand out in Ariane 6, what, what, what would it be? Is what, what have you, what's actually new about it? Um, I could be very boring and give multiple answers. There is, there is interesting technology on there. So, again, the key one is additive manufacturing and have bits on there, um, the APU uh, auxiliary power unit on the upper stage, which I like to call an octopus. It's kind of it's a very strange combustion chamber with arms coming off it, and it's, it's something that's going to add uh, additional um, flexibility on the upper stage, and that's a, really a piece that we wouldn't be able to design or, or produce correctly in, in normal manufacturing methods. So 3D printing that part has really helped us there. Uh, Add, uh, add those elements onto the upper stage, the versatility. But what Aran 6 has done interesting is, is it, it doesn't sound that interesting, is the whole operations plan is really thinking about how to be efficient. Um, and I, I visited the uh, upper stage factory in Bremen uh, last year, a year or two ago, and really the thought out, all this different process and really moving from one step to the other and everything being very quick and efficient and standardization. And uh, it's... We're trying to get to, I mean, we're not there yet, the kind of the plain car type standardization where it's really normal and you can just churn out a launcher um, uh, efficiently every, you know, every week or something. Um, and our ANSIC has really tried to take that into account and also the horizontal assembly. So the whole launch operations in French Guiana have been thought out to be efficient, to be low cost and to be efficient and to have a quick launch campaign and horizontal assembly of the main launcher and then make it vertical on the launch pad, add in the boosters, add in the... Um, and the, um, the the payloads, the satellites, and that's lessons learned from Vega, from Soyuz, from Aaron Five today about how how to be quick and be able to have a quick turnaround, to be able to launch every two weeks or something like that. Was was yeah was that was that interesting getting because how, how did you get involved with say the Soyuz element of launch? That was um, 
that was a really interesting part of my career, actually, is I, for a while I was doing launch operations with Ariane Spass in French Guiana. So I lived in, in French Guiana, South America, which is where the European spaceport is, is where we launch Ariane and Vega from. And at that time I arrived exactly when we were bringing Soyuz. It was this agreement to bring this mythical, and you know, Soyuz is a mythical launch for rocket scientists. It's the one that has launched nearly 2,000 times. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece of, of engineering. Um, and we had this agreement to bring Soyuz to French Guiana and, because French Guiana is a really good launch base because of the proximity to the equator and the speed of the Earth's rotation means we can actually get more performance out of the same launcher. And it was interesting for us to have this relatively low-cost launcher uh, as part of our, of our launcher set. And when I was in French Guiana, we did the whole process, the first operational qualification, bringing the launcher, assembling it, and also the first launches of Soyuz. Um, and that was an absolutely amazing experience because of getting up, up close and personal with this with this mythical launcher and working with the Russians. We never normally do that. And it's such a completely different way of working compared to our Europeans that we both learn a huge amount from each other, us from the Russians and the Russians from us. And that was a really, really great experience, was was was, was assembling the launch, you know, Soyuz for the first time and being there for the first couple of launches of Soyuz and French Guiana. Yeah, I mean, it's that, that, that must have actually have been amazing because, yeah, I... <laughs> When when I think about Soyuz, I just I can't believe how long it's been going, and it's still, it's still still the launch vehicle, isn't it? Really, I mean, I've already made the joke, but I did the the assembly of the satellites on on the upper stage of the frigate, which is kind of a bit like a kick stage, and you, it goes within the fairing, and you we put the satellites on top. Um, and uh, and what I really like is there's, there's these ladies that come along, um, and then that so the insulation on frigate is finished by hand by little ladies, little ladies by women coming to sew up. The insulation is so so beautifully wow. handmade. You know, they're shipped over from Russia. They're flown in from Russia to fix their sewing skills. But the um, the, the stage, I made the joke, it looks like the, the, the plumbing in my grandmother's bathroom. It's it's <laughs> these big, thick pipes, but it, it works. And it's almost a pleasure to work with because it's so solid and sturdy. You have this confidence in it. And the, you have the confidence in the Russians' knowledge of their launcher because they've been launching it for 60 years. They know it. They completely know it. Yeah, I mean, how long do you think Soyuz is going to go on for? How many, how many more decades do you think they've got? Out of it? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't see any end anytime soon because it just, it just, it just works. Yeah, that, it's, that's an it's an incredible engineering story. I can't think of many many other in, sort of industrial engineering projects yeah. that have lasted this long. It's incredible, isn't and it? And they've been they've been doing updates along the way, but the basic design works and. Uh, you can update the materials, update some of the elements, but the the system, the basic system, still works. Well, we'll go into some more frivolous questions now, if you don't mind, because we've we've had you for half an hour. Um, um, if you were to bring back a a, a hero from the dead, uh, a scientist, mm. a rocket scientist, or someone like that, <laughs> who, who would you bring back to show the modern world to sort of say, "Hey, look what look what we've done." Um. That's an interesting question. I just I remember reading a lot of the you know the history of rocket science and the beginning of rocket science. And almost every chapter ended with and then he blew his fingers off. <laughs> and you can see that the pioneers of rocket science yeah. were really you know they were very much involved, but didn't quite have a good idea about safety. I think it would be interesting to bring back Tchaikovsky out of the Tchaikovsky rocket equation because he wrote this equation I can't remember a long long time ago, a few hundred years ago. And I don't think he imagined at all. Even then, it wasn't even considered possible that you could get into space. 
that was just really a kind of a mathematical thought from his side, you know, answering a mathematical question. And now to show him, we've got humans living in space on the ISS permanently. Uh, we've gone to the moon. Uh, we've gone, we've sent, we've got satellites kind of leaving the solar system. I think he mm. would uh, be quite shocked. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's an incredible character. Do, mm. do you not get annoyed by the rocket equation, though? Because it seems to me that it's the, it's the most irritating <laughs> equation ever when it, when, when it comes to getting stuff into space. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good example of how you can almost can't win each time you try and, you know, add in more propellant to be able to get that speed you need. And then it just, oh, I can't even get off the ground. But, uh, um, it, I mean, it is rocket science. I say the, the basics are quite easy to understand. The equation is not that difficult, but trying to get it to work is, is a really hard bit. So here might be an even harder question, Kate. We've got a very, uh, we've got a very important space uh, songs playlist on spotify um and we wondered if there's a space themed song that you'd like to add if we haven't got it already i'm, I'm assuming you've got it already but there's um obviously david bowie and the spaceman of course, uh, of course. Well, my son of is called course. tom and i think it's partly linked to that it was my husband's oh. decision but <laughs> that's excellent we, 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 has he got any space mobiles yet oh his room is full of space stuff the poor guy is just uh I mean, got, he's no, going to be Do you think he might follow in his mum's footsteps to become a rocket scientist, <laughs> or do you think you put him off? Um, obviously, we'll be happy as long as he's happy. We'll be happy with whatever he wants to do. But I think he's going to get bored of rockets by the time he's 10. Yeah, yeah it depends if you get him hook, hooked on Kerbal Space Program or not. That's my husband's job. I'm going to play lots of games with him. <laughs> Yeah, my my son looked like he was going to do it, and then and then I I managed to get them off not thinking about music, but they've all rebelled and they've both become musicians now. It's very irritating. <laughs> You've got to be very careful what you tell your children to do or not do. I know. They will uh, it, it, then do you, the opposite. There's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> this it's, is the thing. So, Kate, we've obviously got um, it's a, a challenging time for everyone at the moment uh, with the lockdown situation. Um, what's your next six months looking like? Um, it's, it's still a little bit, uh, unclear, I think for me, like, like it is for, for everybody else. Um, within ESA, we are very careful because also we're a, we're a very large organization. We're a very large international organization. We have colleagues, my colleagues are from all over Europe. Um, so we have to be careful about the way we work. So as we're not kind of part of this propagation of the virus. Um, and so we're taking it very carefully about going back into the office. And we have started going back into the office, uh, where I, I work in, in Paris normally, um, going back uh, a few days a week um, and as from September I think we'll start ramping that up what we haven't started doing is, is kind of missions I used to be traveling around Europe quite a lot because all of my projects is again what is interesting about Europe and the European Space Agency is our projects are really are pan-European and you really get expertise from all over Europe so I'm working with Germany Sweden you know, Ireland uh, Belgium and I used to be doing quite a lot of missions to go and see the people and go and see the hardware we were producing um, and I think that's not going to be happening quite so soon, which is is not such a bad thing, you know, for me, for for the planet as well. And I think we're also we're starting to um, uh, readjust a little bit and realise that um, already we we were working. I was doing lots of, of teleconferences, and we are working more and more online, being more and more flexible, and and being able to you know reduce our carbon footprint and also and be more efficient in the work we're doing actually spending more time and actually sure, doing sure. stuff rather than traveling around 
Yes, yeah, sure. I certainly feel the same thing. I've got one last question, which I can't really let you go without answering, is watching Starship being built out in the open. For a rocket scientist, is, is, that, is that exciting? Uh, maybe it's coming from French Guiana. I worry about things being out in the open because um, <laughs> things, you know, of the number of insects and birds you can find, uh, as soon as we take the rocket out in, in French Guiana, take it out of the buildings and there's birds flying around it and there's beetles crawling up it. So... Um, I'm not sure it's the best place to be doing it, but um, I'm sure that SpaceX know what they're doing. Um, and I think uh, yeah, as a rocket scientist, you love whatever rockets. And it's amazing what it really is amazing what SpaceX is doing and what the people are doing there. So it's always great to see things like that coming out of the, at the ground. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean about the because I, I I had the absolute fortune to go to French Guiana and and go to the CSG. Mm. And the, <laughs> everything that's outside is destroyed, it seems. All the buildings look absolutely <laughs> knackered. And then you go inside and they're state-of-the-art, obviously. But everything looks, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, pretty, it's a pretty bad environment for for because we're, you know, we're near the ocean, so it's, it's saline and it's windy and it's humid. And so, yeah, all the buildings look horrible. And the inside is, is there, the is air there. is perfect, dry, clean all the time. I've always wanted to know what's the what's the local food speciality in French Guiana? Uh, poulet boucané. Wow. Which is um, smoked chicken. Smoked chicken. There we go. Incredible. <laughs> Matt, did you try that when you were there? Do you know what? I think I did. I think uh, Julio did take me to have some. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. full, full, well, full experience. Ambition. There we go. <laughs> yeah. In fact, not only that, I to get myself. I, I saw the people sewing up. Uh, Beppe Colombo. So that that whole idea mm. of I, when I saw it, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, that people are hand sewing. So even seamstresses can get. Well, working. I didn't mention that as a potential career, but you can yeah. actually be a space seamstress. Yeah, yeah. Seems incredibly important. There we go. That's quite a business card, isn't it? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it's... Kate, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and we know your time is precious. So, yeah, thank you again. Yeah, no problem. It's been a real pleasure talking about rockets, as always. I think you said it's ready for anybody listening and especially young people. You could, if you want to work in space or just go for it, and even if you're not sure, just, just have a look. It's, there is so many, it really is a really great career. And it's even when I'm doing something boring, I'm, you know, I've got some Excel spreadsheet I'm going through. I know at the end of it, it means that we're launching stuff into space. So it's worthwhile. Excellent well, stuff. Well, we'll have to keep in touch. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Well, and and hopefully we'll 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 meet you in in Scotland or somewhere like that at the at the first UK launch. Yes, the first UK launch will be a good event. The interplanetary podcast is alive. Ah, that was fun, wasn't it, Jamie? How good is Kate? Thanks again for Julio for the for the hookup. Thank you, Julio. Um, great to have like proper European space agency workers sharing sharing their cool work with sharing us. their work and also giving excellent tips for any of our yeah. listeners who are looking I, I sometimes say young listeners but but we found out matt that well, doesn't yeah. matter oh, there's lots of listeners yeah, if you're an old listener then um it's never too late it's never too late it's never too late uh jamie yeah if people have found interviews like kate's uh, inspiring what 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 could they possibly do well Rumour has it that there's a website banging around the dark corners of the internet. And it's this, mm-hmm. www.interplanetary.org.uk. And that's where you'll find wow. everything you need. Uh, Matt, if someone wants to support us, if they've enjoyed this, what can they do? 
Well, they can follow the links on that website or just go straight to patreon.com forward slash interplanetary where they can see how they can support us. And we've had some, we've had quite a few new patrons over, over the last Oh, wow. Of welcome. Weeks, so that's really, thank really you. good. Yeah, welcome. So uh, thank you very much. And, and genu- you know, it, it, we really can't do this without your help. Yeah. And uh, we are going to, to, to look to do some form of road trip. We've got our 200th episode coming up. Oh my so, God. Uh, Spodcats, if you've got any, if you've got any ideas of what we should do for the 200th episode, let us know. If you would like to take part in maybe a YouTube chat with everyone in or a Zoom oh, or yes. some massive Zoom Let's conference group Zoom or something call. like that. Yeah, let's do that. Well, so uh, 200th episode coming up. Well, it's a, well, exactly four weeks away, of course. So, um, yeah, let us know. Let us know your feelings. We're open to suggestions, but get them in soon so we can organise something. We are absolutely open to suggestions. Jamie is especially suggestible. This is very true. We should let them go because it's going to be a very yeah. long podcast. I know. Well, we're sorry again. again. We're rambling again. We had a lot of um, response to our gravitational um, episode. We did. Uh, including from Jack Van Loon himself. And he was he, he just wanted to reiterate the point that we shouldn't abandon thinking about small radius centrifuges. That yeah, we should please, be, We people. should be thinking about those. Please. So yeah. that, that was a good point. So I thought I'd better keep that in. But rate, space radiation will do next as, as, as it was such a popular topic. And um, we've already had some great articles like growing mushrooms as a form of radiation protection. You sounds silly, but oh my God, it's the most mind-blowing bl- paper I've read for a while. So uh, we'll do that properly next week. So we- next week, Space Radiation Week. With so if you've got any mushroom. tips, let me know. And if, you, if you're an expert out there listening to this, let me know as quickly as possible and we'll get on the old blower and have a chat about it. I hope there's some garlic to go with those mu- Garlic butter to go with those mushrooms. Hmm. So if anyone can make that happen, I'm just getting hungry, Matt. I haven't eaten anything today. Yeah, yeah. I've I've got a pecan pie literally sitting oh on my, my desk God. right in front of me as we speak. Oh my One God! One of my faves. So gel. One of my faves. Um. Uh, well, All I'm right. gonna say goodbye to the podcast. I'm gonna say bye bye. I'm gonna say goodbye too. Have a great weekend and take care of yourself. Bye bye, podcast. <laughs> See you soon. Bye. Thank you.